Sex. Sex, 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 sex. There. I said it in church. If you had told the me of 12 years old that someday I would be a pastor and I would not only say the word in church, but that I would teach on it for six weeks, you know what I would have done? Laughed in your face. Are you kidding me? Sex is the one word as a kid that I never heard in church or never said in church. It was the one forbidden word when I was a kid. I cannot recall a single sermon or a single Sunday school lesson. Trust me, I would have remembered. And I can't remember a single one over however many years logged as a Baptist on sex or sexuality, not one. And in my own family, for good or bad, sex rarely came up. Those of you that knew my dad will appreciate this story. When Jenny and I got engaged, I was 20 years old, by the way. When we got engaged, my dad and I were taking a walk somewhere. This was over uh, sometime after Christmas because we had gotten engaged at Christmas. We were going to get married in August. And uh, he starts doing this... uh, Mark... And I knew what he was going to ask. This was the only thing he said. Um, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you have any questions? <laughs> he didn't have to say the word. I knew what he was asking, okay? So, so today, today we're going to talk about sex. And for some of you, this will be the sex talk that you never got from your parents. If it helps, avoid avoid eye contact with me, and after five minutes, get up and leave. (laughs) It'll make, it'll just bring back all the memories, okay? I had so much trouble deciding where to begin because there is so much misinformation about sex. There are so many myths about sex. I didn't even know where to start. I mean, culturally, Culturally, in America, if you're born in America and you're growing up in America, there are some things that are uh, spoken and believed and embraced about sex and sexuality. One of them is this. Um, As long as it's two consenting adults, it's okay. Are you over 18? Are you over 18? Okay, great. Go for it. Man and a woman, woman and a woman, man and a man, doesn't matter. As long as it's, you over 18? Yes. Are you over 18? No, I'm 14. (laughs) Wrong. That... You know, we do draw lines, and those are the lines that we draw culturally, and that's one of the things out there. Another myth out in American culture is that sex is about you. You got to figure out what you like and what you don't like and what your needs are, because ultimately sex is about you and your own fulfillment, and you're in charge of that, we're told. Another thing uh, that we're told if you go to college is this, if you're not sexually active, you're not normal. And you can often feel that way in college, especially at some party schools that make the top 10 list of U.S. News and World Report. But uh, another one, that myth that goes on in American culture is that it's just physical. It's just something you do. It's just physical. It's, you know, person and person and together and, and that's it. And then there's another myth that's propagated in women's circles 
well, you know, sex is just for men. Really, we don't get anything out of it. Another myth that's propagated culturally. Um, Another thing that's said in American culture is that it's the most important thing about you. Trumps everything. Your sex and sexuality is the most important thing about you as a person. So we're told. And that's just some of the things that are going on in culture. Well, come over to church land. In church land, for those who grew up Catholic or some forms of Baptist like me, um, sex is this forbidden, dirty topic of which we do not speak. It's almost like the name Voldemort, you know. (laughs) When you're talking about it, you use a substitute word, you know. You know, like no in the biblical sense, no. No, you know, no, okay. Um, Another thing that that is a myth in, in Christian circles is that sex is a result of sin. You know, we wouldn't have had sex if it weren't for sin. The only reason we have sex is because Adam and Eve sinned. The first people blew it, and so, bing, now we have sex. That's another myth that's believed. Uh, Another thing uh, that's believed in Christian circles is that messing up with sex is the number one uh, offense against God. Eh, Read the Bible. Actually, there's something else that takes the place of that. But you'd never know in church land, right? Go to any church in America on a Sunday, stand up and announce that the pastor has had a, quote, moral failure, and watch the sparks fly. I always find it ironic when they stand up and announce those things because... Why don't they just say, Pastor Gary had sex with the secretary, or Pastor, you know, never when they stand up and say, the pastor's had a moral failure, do they mean he took $50,000 out of the building fund? (laughs) It never means that. When he took $50,000 out of the building fund, you know what they stand up and say? Pastor Gary took $50,000 out of the building fund. What? (laughs) Get the tar and feathers, you know, okay? So (laughs) that's an old-fashioned thing. We don't do that anymore, all right? The other thing, the other myth in Christian circles is that, is this, boys and girls, there's only one thing you need to know about sex. You know what that is? Don't. All right, that concludes today's helpful PSA talk. (laughs) Really? Throughout human history, there have actually been three predominant views on sex and sexuality. So for those of you in middle school and high school, I may be doubling up. You may have already learned this, but us grown-ups may not have because when I was a kid, we didn't have sex education. So I, can I get those up on the screen? I've got them in a PowerPoint. The first, the first one of the three is sexual realism. Sexual realism. Many of the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans believed in sexual realism. And what sexual realism is, is this. Sex is just like eating or sleeping. It's just a bodily function. Just something you do. And so... Uh, Today, sexual realism is expressed through the phrase, it's just physical. If no one gets pregnant and no one gets an STD, it's okay because it's just like swimming or playing basketball, only you tend to do it naked. And that's the big difference, all right? So it's just physical. It's just something physical that we do. And in in the course of sex education with this idea in mind, like any skill, like swimming or basketball, right, you want to get better at it. And so they'll often say something else. Practice makes perfect. And there's this myth, this idea that, well, you know, before I get married and before I find the one, that's a whole other subject in sermon, uh, I need to make sure I know what to do. So I'm going to practice with person A, person B, person C, so that when I get to that point, you know, I know what to do and I'm, I'm ready. Again, that's part of the mythology of sexual realism. The funny thing is, how does that work? You know, like I'm thinking of the wedding day. So you've got, 
you know, Gary and Julie, and it's their wedding night, and, and, and Gary says, I'm so glad I practiced, Julie, aren't you? And yes, I'm so glad I practiced with Tim and Dave and Chris and Bob, and I'm ready, Gary, let's go. I mean, really? It just doesn't seem like that would be good. All right? Sexual realism. Another predominant view, another predominant view is sexual Platonism. Sexual Platonism. Plato, remember, one of the Greek philosophers, the spirit is what's really good in the universe. Physical matter, the body, oh, not so much. So anything to do with the body is oh, kind of dirty or lesser. And so from this Platonic thinking, it came in and infected the church in the, uh, a few centuries into Christianity, and Catholicism embraced it. And so parts of Catholicism, that is. And so you had this idea where uh, sex became something that was very dirty. It was a necessary evil. Gosh, if only there were another way to make babies, we would just get rid of it altogether. I mean, and that was the thinking. So sexual Platonism. A third predominant view is sexual romanticism. Sexual romanticism. Uh, And in this view, human beings in their original unspoiled state were good and creative. And what we need to do is we just need to remove the cultural restrictions and knowness and all that other stuff that gets placed on people and just let their natural drives and desires take over because that will be what's best. And so from sexual romanticism comes that thing. The way it's expressed today is um, the phrase, in a relationship. And sexual romantics of 2012 would say, uh, sex is okay as long as with, it's within the context of a loving relationship. Do you love him? Yes. Do you love her? Yes. Well, it's okay. Do you love him? No. Oh, then you shouldn't. You shouldn't have sex. Sex is only for love. And so that's how that plays out. Um, it's an amazing thing. If you're under the age of 30 in here today, it's no wonder sex is confusing, right? There's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of ideas out there. It, uh, I've learned more than I ever wanted to know in the last year as I've been reading up on this topic. There is so much misinformation, and so many people have bought into these myths and more, and it's brought all kinds of havoc to their lives. So I especially have younger people in mind with this series because here's what I believe. If you're younger, if you're under the age of 30, you're being robbed. You're being robbed two ways. One, the government is literally robbing you. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the government's printing huge sums of money, borrowing. And when you're 30, 40, 50 years old, guess what you're going to be doing? Paying it back. (laughs) Okay? So you're being robbed financially. You're also being robbed sexually because you're being told all this stuff that is not going to deliver what it's promising you. And so I want you to have a better life than being robbed, all right? The Bible actually talks about sex. It does. And I know, oh yeah, I know what the Bible says, Max. It says don't. I already got, yep, I've got there, got the certificate, the ring, the whole nine yards. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Bible has a lot more to say than just don't. Stanton Jones, who's a Wheaton provost and a psychologist, he says this, a biblical view of sexuality is a profoundly positive, profoundly appealing, and profoundly life-affirming foundation. Yep. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It's easy to find. It's at the very beginning of your Bible, right? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27. Then God said, 
Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And then God says this in verse 31. God looked over all he had made and said and saw that it was what? Not just good, but very good. Okay? That includes sex. Some of you are like, well, how do you know that, Max? Well, back up to verse 28. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Back then, there was only one way to be fruitful and multiply. That's a euphemism for make babies, make lots of babies, all right? And you do that by having sex. And so, Sex in the very first chapter of the Bible is something that God has given human beings, that God has made human beings into, and calls it very good, all right? God created the first humans with four things related to sex and sexuality. He created the first humans with sexual capacity. That means I'm capable of having sex, you're capable of having sex. We're capable It's a capacity. The second thing is that he created the first humans with sexual desires. Those are natural and God-given. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Third, he gave a specific mandate to procreate. Again, that's just a big $9 college word that means make babies. Fourth, he created in them a longing for physical oneness with the other. And that's huge. Genesis 2, verse 25, puts it this way. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Right there in the opening pages of the Bible, before sin enters the picture, you have sex, you have God calling it very good, and you have physical and spiritual oneness between a man and a woman where, quote, they feel no shame. Sex isn't just a physical activity, according to the Bible. It's a pathway to intimacy. It's a pathway to intimacy. Intimacy just means I am known, I know you, and I am fully known. That's intimacy. And it's not just about making babies. It reflects the kind of closeness that God wants to have with people. And some of you are like, whoa, wait a minute. Yes, theologically, the church has affirmed that sex between a husband and a wife is a kind of picture for the kind of intimacy, the kind of closeness that God wants to have with people. Because when a husband and a wife are together in a bed, naked with each other, they're fully accepted There's no shame. There's no comparison. They are, quote, completely naked, defenseless. It's that kind of picture. It's that kind of intimacy that God wants with people. 
where when you're relating to God, you're not saying, oh, but I'm not as good as pastor so-and-so. I'm not as good as my Christian neighbor. I'm not as, and you're not afraid of all the things you've done wrong. You're not afraid of all of the other things that you've heard about God. There's no fear. There's acceptance. There's intimacy. Some of you are having a light bulb right now. You're like, whoa, God's pretty amazing. I know. I know. That's the kind of intimacy that God wants. If you don't believe me, Open your Bibles this week and read Ezekiel chapter 16 and see how God describes his relationship with people using sex and sexuality to do it. All right, so right in the opening pages of the Bible, you have a man and a woman who are having sex and God calls it very good. And if that weren't enough, he put an entire book of the Bible in the Bible that follows the courtship marriage and consummation of the marriage between a man and a woman who become husband and wife. And that's the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And I'm going to read one passage from Song of Songs chapter 5. And I've got the verses for you up on the screen. This is the woman speaking. My lover is dark and dazzling, better than 10,000 others. His head is finest gold. His wavy hair is black as a raven. His eyes sparkle like doves beside springs of water. They're set like jewels washed in milk. His cheeks are like the gardens of spices giving off fragrance. His lips are like lilies perfumed with myrrh. His arms are like the rounded bars of gold set with beryl. His body is bright ivory glowing with lapis luzili. His legs are like marble pillars set in sockets of finest gold. His posture is stately like the noble cedars of Lebanon. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is desirable in every way. Such a woman of Jerusalem is my lover, my friend. In the ancient world, to have a woman pursuing a man, to have the woman's voice be dominant, would have been unheard of. And here it is in the pages of Scripture, inspired by God to teach us something important. All right? This section, uh, I've read by several commentaries when I was reading, several of them made this claim. Most English translations avoid the obvious Hebrew meanings because the translators feel that it's just too explicit. There's this part of them that there's, they're, they're, they're like, it's the Bible. I can't put this in the Bible. I just... Well, We'll call it gazelles or something. Oh, that sounds good. Gazelles, go for it, okay? You know, and so uh, this section is describing a prelude to lovemaking. The couple is aroused, excited, joyful, and they feel no shame. Again, God created sex and called it very good. But like everything else in creation, right, it's been polluted and marred by sin. And I want to highlight a few ways that that's the case when it comes to sex and sexuality. This same man and woman, Adam and Eve, that we were looking at in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, in chapter 3, they make a decision. They decide that God was holding out on them. See, God had told them, you can eat everything but this one thing, this one, the fruit of this one tree. And Adam and Eve decided that that can't be right. That can't... God's holding out on us. He's not giving us his best. We don't have the be God doesn't have our best interests at heart. They didn't trust 
that what God was saying was right and true and that God had their best interest at heart. So they eat from the tree and boom, they sin, they rebel, and now, now they feel ashamed. They feel ashamed for what they've done and they feel ashamed because they're naked. And shame enters the picture in chapter 3. Like all sin, sex and sexuality is affected by the fall, okay? So today, today we're sexually broken people. We've got genetic issues. We have hormone level issues. We have hurtful family experiences. We have hurtful sexual encounters, all of which leave us broken. We're also sexually rebellious, We do what we want, irregardless of what God says, because just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we think God's making stuff up. God's holding out on us, and we believe that something other than God is going to make us most happy. And so we're sexually rebellious. Another thing is that we're in sexual bondage. You have all kinds of sex addictions, pornography, the chief among them, and so much more that just pollutes, and it's a dark hole abysmal place to go. But there is good news, and that's in Romans chapter 8. I want to read you this section, and I want to change some words, so you'll have to forgive me for changing some words, but I want you to feel the impact of this verse as, as how it relates to us uh, sexually. Romans 8 verse 1, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who've sinned sexually, who've rebelled sexually, who've been addicted sexually. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of weakness, of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us so that by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins, he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. So as we get started on this series, I just want to start off the gate by affirming what the Bible affirms that sex is a good thing. It's a gift from God. In its proper channel, in its proper place, it is a blessing, not a curse. All right? The Bible has so much more to say about sex than just don't. In the opening pages of the Bible, we have a union between Adam and Eve, a husband and a wife, to the closing pages of the Bible where God paints a picture of a wedding feast as a way to describe the coming together of Jesus and his church. Obviously, there's something powerful and good about sexuality. So we should be talking about sex in the church. So in light of this, I want to ask some questions to some specific groups of people. Question number one, if you're married, all right, if you've got a husband or got a wife, do you find it difficult to talk, to, talk about sex even with your spouse? If that's true, for those of us that are older and grew up in, you know, puritanical America, that may be the case. If you find it difficult, would you be willing to consider a better way? Would you be willing to consider that maybe there might be some religious things that don't have anything to do with the Bible 
that are flavoring this wrong sense of shame and talking about something so important with the one person who is committed to you no matter what. Right? Second question. If you've got kids, sixth grade on up, do you talk about sex and sexuality with them? I'm talking beyond, quote, the sex talk. I'm talking about on a somewhat regular basis because, trust me, it comes up regularly out there. It comes up regularly and consistently out there. Do you talk about them? Do you talk, have you affirmed to your kids that sex is a good thing, a good gift from God? Have you talked with your kids about what it means to be, uh, live in a fallen world and what that means sexually as well? Um, for those of you that are teenagers and with us today, all right, so for those of you guys in middle school or high school, would you be willing to consider that your parents might be a better source of information than your friends and colleagues? I'm serious. I mean, after all, you're here, right? So mom and dad know something, and <laughs> there's a good chance, there's a good chance that s- some of your moms and dads walk down some roads that, you know, they would love to go, hey, I thought this road would take me to a great place, and all I got was a lousy t-shirt. It'll be much different than that, but you get the point, okay? All right, so here's some questions for everyone. As we walk through some things this series, would you be willing to submit to what God says about sex, even if you don't like it, even if you disagree with it? At Generations, we believe in something called biblical authority. And the way biblical authority works is this. The consistent teaching of God in the Bible on things, when, when we come up against that and we look at it and we go, well, that doesn't make sense, or, well, I think that's, you know, full of hooey. Regardless of what we think, we just come under and we go, yes, sir, God. That's what it means to walk under biblical authority. When you're confronted with something that you disagree with or don't like or whatnot, if it's the consistent teaching of Scripture, you just go, yes, sir, God. All right? Would you be willing to consider that? Would you be willing to extend grace to others at work, at school, who have different views than you have? And yes, even in this body, in this fellowship, this is a diverse group of believers. All right? Would you be willing to extend grace when you come up with things where somebody disagrees with what you think about sexual issue A. And lastly, would you be willing to pursue sexual holiness? You're like, what? What is that? Oh, we're going we're gonna to wade into that over the coming weeks. But if, if you're a teenager, if you're a married man, if you're a widow, if you're divorced, doesn't matter. We all have the same goal. Sexual holiness. Holiness is just a way of saying being set apart from God, doing what you do for God, unto God. Would you be willing to pursue sexual holiness so that what you do sexually is done unto God, for God? That changes a lot, doesn't it, right there, just having that as a goal, all right? 